0: The Financial Times guides you through complex issues. In divisive times, don't settle for black and white. When you need the full perspective, turn to FT.com. Become a subscriber today. Search for FT subscription.
1: Critical Mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach Critical Mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs
0: Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today.
1: Welcome to Fintech Insider Insights, brought to you by 11FS, your friendly digital transformation agency. We help banks become truly digital. Fintech Insider has been downloaded in more than 160 countries and we regularly hover near the top of the business category in iTunes. That's thanks to you, so thank you for listening. I'm Simon Taylor and I'm joined by my 11FS colleague David Breer. David, how are you? very well thank you very much and of course we have some fantastic guests right here from level 39 at the heart of fintech in london uh the guests we have today are richard crook the head of innovation engineering at rbs richard what is it a head of innovation engineering at rbs does can you tell us a little
0: so uh good to have you back. good to be back I live betwixt worlds uh, between technology uh, and the innovation wing or the business trying to do innovation uh, in in an incumbent bank, which gives me an opportunity to Uh, lead a small team of innovators and engineers looking at disruptive technologies and attempting to apply them, usually to old problems. But from our customers' perspective, it makes us uh, more cost-effective and gives them a better customer experience.
1: Well, thank you, Richard, for using betwixt in a sentence. That's much obliged. Um, And we also have Maya Zahavi, the vice president of product at Kedit. Um, Who who are you and who's Kedit?
2: I'm still trying to figure out who I am. (laughs) However, Kedit is a blockchain startup that is looking to Harness zero-knowledge-proof technology to build a trustless audit platform kind of bring both uh, auditing and real-time compliance to the blockchains.
1: Real-time compliance, there's a sentence of the day. We'll get back into that for sure. But uh, I'm going to start off by throwing a question at Richard. I'm just going to throw it at you. Where do you think we're at in the development of distributed ledger tech and blockchain? Because there's still a whole bunch of people arguing on Twitter about this stuff. But to me, it feels like we've moved on a little bit. Maybe it's not the number one thing in the conference anymore. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? What's what's been happening in the last few months?
0: So I think... Industry is moving broadly in the right direction uh, from our perspective. We've moved on from the technology discussion. Uh, we've lifted that uh, into business applications, uh, so it isn't a tech fest anymore. Around which technology should be broadly, people understand the difference between Bitcoin, blockchain, distributed ledger, and the. Uh, we're still seeing lots of new people coming into this space trying to understand what Bitcoin is, what blockchain is, what distributed ledger is. So there's still an inflow of people trying to understand what this can do for them and uh, and what they can hope it will uh, bring to their customers. From our perspective, uh, we're comfortable it's moving uh, in the right direction.
1: Do do we really think that everybody now knows what it is? Like, I'm personally, I, I'm still very skeptical that actually people really understand what this is. I think maybe just the idea that something shiny is taking their attention away from this for a little while. But uh, you know, I, th- I think there's a, a definite still lack of knowledge. There's definitely a lack of skills in this space for sure. Uh, yeah. Maya was saying it right before we we started recording that there's there's different tiers of people kind of involved in the conversation at the moment, and and perhaps in some projects that's been overcome. But my observation is there's still a lot of people uh, talking about the subject as if they know what it is in. in Hope, good hope of doing something with it, but actually probably not close enough to it to to have any hands-on experience with it. I don't know. Do, do you have the same experience? Do you think it's it's yes? I just any-
2: I'm not so sure that's a bad thing. In terms of, I think blockchain or DLT is something so abstract that sometimes when you get um, to the, it's a gritty hands-on, you kind of lose sight of what it was that made it so magical. Um, and I find that a lot of of times with people that have been, you know have worked a lot, for example, with Corda and Solidity and they like the smart contracts. And sometimes you bring in new people and they kind of rethink things. And suddenly the abstraction layer of what blockchain or or distributed ledgers can bring to the table kind of gets reignited into the discussion. So I think today I kind of define distributed ledgers very differently than what I did say two years ago, right? So if at some point I would just say it's a a distributed uh, right database, Nowadays, I kind of think of that as something where two parties see the same exact data on the ledger, meaning they see the world in the exact same sense, and that means they don't have to bring in a third party for data reconciliation. And that kind of makes us think, when do you go in and knock on a third party to make sure that your data is the same as my data? And that's usually when you go to an auditor, right, and you ask them, uh, can you please make sure that... Someone is compliant the way they're saying that they're compliant or or the valuation or uh, give us a risk assessment. And because we were so entrenched into what the consensus mechanism that is the most legitimate, we kind of lost sight of, of that.
1: Yeah, I think that's what um, Richard was saying about it uh, starting out as a tech fest. And there's maybe two constituents. There was the people who were really bought into the the economist and the the media sparkle about Blockchain replaces any intermediary. Blockchain replaces any middleman. This consensus thing is magic, and then there was the techie sort of saying, "Hey, maybe I don't need this, or maybe I'm bought into it all the way, and maybe I like this particular flavor more than any other flavor." And there was nothing in the middle of that bridging that gap was was kind of difficult. Richard, you like to talk about the 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 man with two clocks, Um, and because I think what um, Mayo was talking about there about knowing um, that we have the same data without necessarily uh, invalidating our privacy, our commercial confidentiality, seems to be a real issue in financial services. So so what what do you mean by the man with two clocks?
0: So the uh, man with two clocks is uh, it was a very early use case. We identified on the basis that the regulator uh, receives data from, from two parties, two regulated parties. It could be UBS, it could be Deutsche, it could be RBS. It doesn't matter which regulated entities. It gets them on a daily basis and they don't add up. They, they, they don't, they're not consistent. There's no consensus between those two data sets. That's how most regulatory reporting is done uh, on a daily basis or monthly basis. And the regulator stands like a man with two clocks. They don't know the time. It could be trade reporting um, where Deutsche and UBS have done trades uh, and made trades and those trades should net off. Uh, it could be uh, inflows and outflows of liquidity positions. It doesn't matter what you're reporting to your regulator. Uh, if those are not consistent, and the regulator has a, uh, a mandate to try and create consensus or an aggregated position across the economy uh, of the monetary system, then they stand like a man with two clocks, they don't know the time. And the, the, the real vision that we're putting out there with distributed ledger uh, and a distributed ledger technology is that if you could create a consensus uh, of a data set, just as I was saying, between those two regulated entities, the onus would not be on the regulator to demand data from each of those regulated entities. They would have that set of data, that consensus uh, data set that has now got a consensus between those two regulated entities to read from, and that would lift the onus off those regulated entities. And the cost, from our perspective as banks, is massive. Uh, we spend an awful lot of money trying to get that data correct. And if we could actually get to consensus with our peer before we reported it to the regulator or before the regulator reads it from that consensus ledger, uh, it would be a huge cost saving.
1: So instead of just putting it out there, then trying to fix it after the regulator's seen it, you are now putting it to a position where... even it, it's matched it you know it is because the technology's handled that for you and you don't have to worry about fixing it after the fact with manual processes manual workarounds and all all the costs come with that and talk to me how that contrasts with the traditional kind of uh, reporting uh, cycles we've seen because we see standardization coming in we've seen method 2 and mere 39 we've seen lots of efforts to create data standards to try and make this better but it's my opinion and i don't know if you agree that that's only going to have so much benefit and eventually you need to know that you're your records match versus just making sure that people are trying to send the same data. It's like trying to create a, a square peg and ensure that, you know, only square things go through this hole. But actually if I had something small enough, I can fit just about anything in there and I'm trying to report to it and my systems look different to your systems. I've just got this square hole to report to the regulator. I'm going to squeeze whatever I think is right down there, but it's it's not necessarily the same as what somebody else thinks is right.
0: Is it? Uh, the, the simple answer is it, it's, extremely difficult. If I sent you out into Canary Wharf this afternoon to go and count the number of free parking spaces and then I did the same, there is no way we'd come up with the same number. And if we were reporting that back on a daily basis of how many free parking spaces we saw, you can now start to see the inconsistency that exists within the system. If actually uh, we both had mobile phones or we both agreed which parts of Canary Wharf we would uh, measure, we are creating a consensus. It doesn't matter what consensus algorithm we're using or what technology we're using to solve that problem, we have made consensus or created consensus before we've reported that. That's,
1: that's huge. So Go I ahead. would
2: kind of look at that metaphor and kind of say that um, I think in terms of regulatory reporting, a lot of times is what is a parking space, right? What is the definition? What can you capture with your phone? And I say that in the sense because you don't necessarily know how to codify every single regulatory requirement. And so that's – I think that's where um, a lot of the discrepancies come from because every um, financial institution kind of uses a different reporting mechanism and has different – I mean, I hate to say it, but Excel um, or sometimes just PDFs. And in order to have a code run for compliance, sometimes you really need to codify the law, which – is a discussion that was in the DLT space like a couple of years ago when we started talking about leg tech and smart contracts and uh and Leg such. tech. Wow, leg
1: that's, tech. A, that's a good one. I've never heard that one before.
0: Is reg tech leg tech? So, so you're, you're absolutely right, If you, you look at it, the regulators worked out that they don't need more regulation, more reports, more data, they need better data. And now they're trying to work out how to get better data. They only have one mechanism, which is to go to each of the regulated entities and demand data. They can ask for a better transport, they can ask for a better protocol, but even if you look at, and you're absolutely right, if you look at something like GAP, which is the General Agreed Accounting Practices, well the name tells you that these are the general agreement to disagree and that's exactly what each of the institutions do. They, they have generally agreed to disagree on how they will report. What we're trying to get to here is, is actually if you force the process to not be hub-and-spoke and into the regulator, but the regulator forces it upon the banks and the regulated entities to come to consensus before it gets reported. Actually, you get a cleaner data a cleaner data set. And that is the is the distributed ledger.
2: So cool. that's kind of what we're trying to do right now. And we're taking uh, zero knowledge proof and cri- trying to create that into a constraint platform where basically the regulator comes in and puts the clauses of regulation, the requirements into code constraints that run on a financial institution's private IT systems and create proofs of the compliance or non-compliance, pre-transaction, or an aggregate of different entries within that um, IT system, and then use, uses the blockchain as the medium to publish the proofs and as a reporting mechanism. So right now, you can see, um, if we were looking before at the example of uh, Deutsche, and I think it was BNY... So now we know that uh, the regulator can make sure that the constraints for compliance for AML, KYC, with Deutsche and, K- and BNY are identical, the same, because that's how they wrote the constraints. However, BNY would not necessarily see that the compliance for Deutsche's clients that they are not um, allowed to see, right? So you have a permission set of how you decrypt these proofs from the,
1: the blockchain. That's really interesting from a regulator's perspective to be able to say, here is my rule set. Um, And I'm going to define this rule set as a a set of code. And because I've defined that rule set as a set of code, I can put that into this new system and this new system can check inside each of your own internal ledgers and will give me proof that you are compliant with that rule set, which is really interesting. But it begs the second question, are the regulators ready for that? Do they have the skill set to actually become that? Or or is this a place for, for, for somebody else to be? What do we think?
2: There are some regulators that are starting to think along those lines. I think some regulators are aware of this capability but haven't, they're not playing yet. I think sa- I think this goes beyond sandboxing really. And maybe this is where financial institutions have to come in and say, hey, we have built these set, uh, these the rule set that you're going to need. Here's how we're running it. Can you nod and say that as a regulator you're okay with it and we'll just report this back to you through a, a, a blockchain? Um, I think MAS is the most advanced by
1: far. MAS, the, MAS, the Monetary Authority of
2: Singapore. Monetary Authority of Singapore. After that, probably uh, Bank of England, FCA, uh, with the sandboxing initiative, but maybe not as hands-on.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that maybe you could trial this in a sandbox, but actually what you probably need to do is say, can this be workable? Because there are so many in-flight changes to how reporting is happening for large financial institutions currently um, that you know, I think regulators philosophically buy this, but somebody needs to show it to them and say, okay, this is what you would see, this is how it works. Uh, and I think from a, a kind of a bank's perspective, there has to be a real business case made around how to, and even on the buy side, right, for, for every market participant, um, there has to be an incentive. I mean, do, do you see that um, this is something that the FIs and certainly people in the financial services industry would welcome? And, and if so, what would you see as the case? Is it just really redu- reduction of operational costs or is there is there more to it?
0: So if you look at the regulators, certainly the lead regulators, Bank of England and Singapore, MAS, is the two that uh, I always watch, are very much leading in this space and their interest in... Uh, distributed ledgers is already showing you that it's more than thinking about digital currencies it's it's to do with regulatory reporting and they're certainly uh, up there. Regulatory reporting is a slow game. Enron went bust in 2001. The uh, regulation that uh, mitigated uh, that or a disaster happening again or that collapse happening again only went in in 2007. So it gives you an idea that Takes you know half a decade or more for an event to be followed by regulation. Now we've seen the tsunami of regulation come through uh, from the financial crisis in 08, 09, and actually now what we're seeing is version two, as they recognise that actually I don't just don't want more data or better data, and what they're now doing is upgrading those regulations uh, by changing what they want, tightening up uh, how we classify it in terms of the win from a regulated entity, you've got thousands of man-years of effort going on inside uh, the banks attempting to get to the right number before it's reported, both on the risk and the finance side. But that is nothing compared to a small change on your RWA, uh, your risk-weighted assets. If you can make a small change, a small change to the quality of the data and your trading volumes, your risk-weighted assets is a huge, uh, a, a huge benefit.
1: That's really, really significant. I, I think the the whole reg reporting space, um, but also generally the data quality space, is something where having additional certainty is of value. It seems to be what I'm hearing consistently is that a type of consensus, doesn't matter which one it is, uh, that gives me that um, assurance of data quality, not only allows me to reduce operational costs, reduce um, risk around reg reporting and, and, and other r- operational risks, but it also potentially allows me to make some serious business case um, business cases around our RWAs and many, many more. Um, I'm gonna take a slight change of tack and introduce the, the subject of KYC and identity. Um, and, and as we do that, let's take a step back and just define KYC and identity a little bit bit from, from a bank's context because I think when you were talking about large institutions transacting with each other, you know, sort of PepsiCo wants to raise a large bond or you know, sort of um, pension funders buying a whole load of, uh, of one asset of bonds from, from somewhere else in the world. When these things happen, these large transactions happen, we talk about KYC and we talk about identity, but ultimately what we're looking for is getting back to the passports of an individual human and getting back to those who were the ultimate beneficial owners and you might have um, complicated uh, kind of company structures and all kinds of challenges. And right now, as I understand it, Most financial institutions do this by looking for the passports of the individuals every time they need to do a large transaction, um, and trying to get at the underlying paper. And there's a large paper cost and a paper trail involved in doing that every single time there's a large transaction. And there've been a few standards that have helped with this, like the legal entity identifier, the LEI, um, and a few other things that tech standards that have helped banks over the past sort of 10-15 years really alleviate some of the challenges around KYC. But it, to my mind, it remains one of the biggest costs and challenges in the industry. Mayo how would you define kind of that challenge? And, and what would you see as, as some of the potential ways forward with it, if if DLT can be something that, that starts to alleviate that?
2: I think, and this is not something that's exclusive to KYC, I think a lot of the use cases that are the most advanced in terms of getting into the raw data have a lot to do with capturing actual documents and extracting uh, structured data from them. And I think in KYC, we're going to see a lot of that shift in terms of identifying and having, for example, instead of uh, a document proving your residence, having a proof of residence just as a check within the IT system that you can later kind of send it if you're talking about financial passporting. Um, And that would also include uh, digital identities going from the, the, the paper trails of passports and identity uh, documents into something that is that has the immutable attributes per identity that can help us authenticate ourselves and reauthenticate every single time we we go in, into a transaction in terms of the 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 KYC the actual checking i think that's where you're going to see a whole other set of technologies enabling technologies other than uh, uh, DLT come into play, right? Because you're you're gonna wanna be able to see how AI, for example, scraps, different fraud analysis per client, per individual. You wanna be able to uh, assess maybe social media profiles according to to different subsets of groups. Um, And we're only just now starting to experiment with those technologies as they have to do with identity.
1: There's, there's a lot of um, things I'm seeing at the moment, and uh, a lot of joy I think some companies are having selling what they're calling machine learning and AI, which is actually just um, automation of manual processes, which is taking a, a paper identity document, having a machine scan it and pull out the, uh, that unstructured data and put it into a They call it
2: OCR, data. and it's been around for about 20 years.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's been around for a while, but now what they're doing is using that to drive a workflow. Now, that's something that, again, that you could have done for the last 20 years. It's a bunch of if-then-else statements um, in a glorified way but actually plugging that into a verified identity or when you get to a level of confidence with that document to have something that I then stamp with a proof a cryptographic proof that is then portable in some way it's almost like um, the old-fashioned um, letters that I would have stamped and sealed in wax but I'm doing that in a digital sense
0: so, so let, let's break this into the, the parts because uh, to be controversial KYC is not a valid use case for blockchain
1: oh, you-
2: but it is a step in a valid use case.
0: So if you look at uh, KYC from the point of view of it's a problem and actually we all uh, as regulated entities keep checking the same documents over and over again and actually wouldn't it be better if we could share and act as a proxy for the uh, the, the identity, blockchain has acted as a catalyst to get us in a room to talk about that problem and solve that problem But actually is blockchain the right technology to solve it no take a look at the second problem you're looking at which is scanning of the document you are digitizing a document but actually you've got no acknowledgement that that document is valid or not you've just taken a photocopy of it looked at it and gone there's a photo of simon taylor
1: but how's that different from any bank process today
0: correct so actually when we go back to kyc and i have unfortunately uh, a real problem because the engineers I work with are uh, smart. When I asked them to put, uh, solve this using blockchain, they took one look at me and said, no, you go to the UK passport office and you get them to give us an API. I went through the airport last night and I put my passport in a scanner and it scanned it and it verified against their database that that passport is valid. I want that API. So what you're actually asking for in the KYC conversation is an API from the central authority, keyword central, that is going to give you a verification that that passport is correct. Now you can do that with vehicles and you can do that with DVLA UK driving licenses, but I want a passport, UK passport office to give me an API that lets me scan a document and ask for verification that that passport is valid hold on let me let me push
2: back on that even then that would be the first step right after i've i've been able to ensure that you say who you say you are because the uk government has assured me that your document which i'm still in doubt whether or not you even need an actual document um is correct how would i know that you're still kyc aml approved because that check still has to run in real time i mean you know since the last time maybe you've just decided to become a criminal and, you know, retire from banking.
1: You're a UK citizen, but you might also be a criminal. So how do I check that with an API from the UK passport office? So
0: you get to the point where actually we keep going back to these central authorities and actually we want a central authority that provides us an API and a database. And that's where actually the conversation was around, did you want to use blockchain for this? And the answer is no.
1: Not for that piece. But, but I think there's the point at which there is additional data you need, not are you who you say you are, because you may well be. The question isn't actually KYC, it's really CDD, it's customer due diligence. That's where the debate really is, to get super fintech insider about it. I think it, I think it's a valid point, though, that these things are only ever as good as the information that you're actually putting into them in the first place. So if you're not really sort of leveling up the, the information that's going in, then it doesn't matter how secure or uh, how good the access points actually are to it.
0: But we are still watching this KYC um, use case because I think we're we're seeing a number of projects and a number of pilots coming out where they're breaking the back of the sharing of KYC where the banks do act as a proxy for the issuing authority. So uh, if uh, I gave you an ability to say that I had a NatWest customer and I gave you an API that led you authenticate to say this person is NatWest customer. That's KYC for you, uh, as, as most companies. So we act as a proxy for central authorities issuing passports, because you know that I've done that KYC. The only real question now is, will the regulator allow you, as another regulated entity, to use that authentication?
1: So I, I was close to the Gov.Verify program for a short while whilst I was at Barclays, and... The issue wasn't the regulator there. The issue wasn't the government. It was that the way in which it had been structured in the UK and and I think uh, a lot of other countries um, that have done it is that it was a private sector initiative. So the private sectors would share directly with each other their KYC and customer due diligence with each other. And of course, when you've done customer due diligence and I say Richard is not a criminal, um, then I'm saying mayor is not a criminal to to another uh, financial institution. I may be saying that to somebody in insurance or another bank. Then that person turns out to be a criminal who is liable for that that statement. So the issue there was that there was a lack of a central authority that kind of became the issue. So the way that some of the blockchain um, initiatives get around that is say, well, that's fine. Let's change the architecture here. Blockchain isn't the answer to everything. We need some APIs. We need some traditional DevOps style, you know, just a a nice kind of AWS stack top to bottom that's got everything you need to run any kind of web service on it. And what we need sitting in there is a nice um, dockerized container that stores my data um, with some PKI signatures over the top of that. It's geeking out a little bit here. Sorry, listeners, but stay with me. So basically, I've got a bucket that holds my data. I've got APIs that allow me to access that data, put data into that bucket, and that bucket is held by bank number one. Okay. Now, what I do as an individual with my device is I say, I am the holder of that bucket. Here is my key. I'm going to bank number two. I would like to pull the data from that bucket, retrieve it, and put it on my device. And not the- even the
2: data just maybe some computation on that data or some attributes of the, of your data.
1: Maybe even just some attributes of the data. Yeah, it can be very selective. Or it could be all of the data or something very selective. I pull that to my device and then I push it to the second bank. By pulling and pushing, I've done the, exactly the same as if I'd walked into a branch with my own p- pieces of paper and plastic.
0: For your uh, listeners, you use an acronym PKI.
1: Yeah, uh, public key encryption.
0: And that public key encryption and that whole key chain and signing authority has been around for 20 years, 30 years, and actually in the KYC space, isn't that what we're trying to achieve, which is effectively a key signing authority and,
1: and that works in Norway, that works in Estonia. You can do a lot of this with PKI if you have a central authority that's willing to take that level of control. You probably won't get that in the USA because of the regulatory structure. You probably won't get that in the UK or Europe. So what you need is something in which the, the market itself, because of the market dynamics, can actually operate in a more peer-to-peer basis without the liability issue, the way it does today would in you, the physical would, would,
0: space. Do, would you expect a, could you expect a bank to act as that key issuer?
1: Yes, but then how many people fall? For its customers or for every customer in the market? Because then you get a peer-to-peer issue. Because at some point you have to have a way in which um so I control twenty-five percent of the market. Great. So twenty-five percent of the market uses this certificate authority, twenty-five percent of the market uses this. 20, another 20% uses that certificate of authority. What standard do they use? How do they all come to agreement? Because in PKI, uh, we've tried to come to agreement on that several times. Um, in, in many markets, we've seen it in South Korea, we've seen it in the US, we've seen it in Europe, we've seen it in the UK. Uh, when you try and rely on the private sector to do it themselves, When it's just PKI as a technology, it falls down on the liability issue because PKI assumes that bank number one is taking the authority from bank number two to take that data because it's got a a key. And this magic key allows me to unlock all kinds of crazy damage, whereas actually if... The individual is reintroduced back into the equation, and if that individual is also attesting to this is my data, I'm giving you my data. It's exactly the same as if they walked into a branch.
2: So let me let me let me kind of tackle it from the other side. What if it's not um, the individual? What if it's someone that's giving me an identity service? Meaning, I'm going to the bank. I'm saying, please sign, attest to the fact that I'm KYC. Store my data. I am trusting you to ensure this GDPR. I'm consenting to such and such. And now. What you do every time I want to use this identity, maybe you can give me a pseudonymous, I don't know, um, XYZ identity when I want to apply for a mortgage, and you can give me a um, an identity of ABC if I want to uh, apply for a credit card, right? Now you can attest to the fact that I am KYC approved, that you have seen my, my- – Proof of residence that you know my my credit line is, and you're kind of letting that identity that you have, um, that you're servicing, go out into the world and interact. And as you're interacting, and that interaction can maybe be just logging into my app, right, and applying for a loan, and sometimes getting declined, and sometimes getting a new credit card, and all that computes back into me. So now, whatever it is you're testing about me as an individual or an identity, might change throughout a time interval.
1: Which is kind of what we always had from um, Experian and Core Credit credit and all these guys, but but they only saw a very small slice of the picture. This is a much larger slice, but it's doing it in a way in which you're not exposing all of that information um, and creating a privacy issue because you're only sharing proofs. I'm only sharing the stamp. I'm only sharing a pointer to that information.
2: Better yet now, right? You can have a computation. So for example, whatever it is, you want to score my credit line for a credit card, Barclays can run in in one computation on uh, me as a UBS client, while as RBS will run a different computation, right? So maybe under your uh, guidelines or whatever it is you want to calculate, I'm eligible for, I don't know, uh, 20,000 pound credit line for, for monthly credit line. While as with Barclays, they will only give me 5,000.
1: But they're looking at the same data. But they're looking at the same data. And they're looking at it in a way where they can't actually see the underlying data. They're just running a computation. I think that idea of zero-knowledge proofs is is really compelling. I think for a lot of people, it's still considered science fiction. And I like the fact that there's somebody out there like Kedit pushing that as an idea and saying, hey, we fixed it. Come look at this and come kick it. Because I think if if that dream can be realized, it could be truly truly powerful but i, I want to take a brief step back before we before we go all the way into zero knowledge proofs because i think richard alluded to a point that pki is a 20 year old technology and i think there's a lot of technologies here that are very old uh, that that need to be used more because when we started this conversation i said what's the state of the industry and and to me it feels like the state of the industry is we've realized that the blockchain and the dlt stacks by themselves out of the box don't solve everything, they don't even solve 50% of it, maybe not even 20% of it. We're actually having to use a lot of old technology and, and, and engineer our way to the answers. And there may be some things that really help us do that. But does that mean then, because we're engineering in lots of different directions, we're creating this really narrow focus, does does it mean that we're getting sort of more platform lock-in? Does it mean that the, the tools we're building only work for certain parts of the market for certain particular problems? And it's moving so far away from the idea that we would have have some kind of interoperability and it's just solving for certain bits in certain ways. Do do we get to have a platform at the end of this for financial services? Or is this um, VHS and Betamax, and there's a couple of platforms out there, or even worse, is it just there's a whole bunch of products that solve a whole different bunch of problems? What are your thoughts on that, Richard?
0: Broadly, the technology is moving uh, for us in the right direction and conversion to the right point. Uh, If you look at the journey that uh, the internet has gone through and the protocols there, um, you wouldn't have been able to run Netflix uh, on the Internet of 1995. And the same is true of Linux and the multiple uh, distributions that converge through the Linux Foundation. So we're very happy to see the Linux Foundation uh, create the Hyperledger project. Uh, we're good to see that not one single vendor uh, has uh, won the uh, tech war over uh, the blockchain platforms. Um, and that's good, uh, what we are seeing is uh, the final stages of that as each of those uh, viable platforms are converging underneath the hyperledger project where there isn't one technology uh, inside the hyperledger project there are a number of technologies uh, and they are and will be slowly converging uh, and that will take time Uh, but it's in the right direction and from our perspective the First and foremost, principle was to make sure that uh, we didn't get a vendor lock-in. If you take yourselves back to to email in the mid '90s, uh, Microsoft would have uh, would have loved to have ended up uh, being the single proprietary platform for email, and thankfully, uh, we didn't end up all on one single email platform. Standards come afterwards. Uh, interoperability will come afterwards. Uh, is it the VH, VHS Betamax? The, the market is far too broad. What's more important for us right now is that uh, we create a open, uh, both open and open source platform, free platform that allows uh, different applications to arrive, the Amazons and the Googles and the Facebooks, but allow enough space uh, and enough uh, freedom for the um, Pinterests uh, and the uh, Netflix to arrive later. Um, into the uh, into the space.
1: Interesting. So that you can't really have one platform to unify them all, but there are some simple ideas under, underneath them. Um, and so, where do you see it kind of evolving? Because there was a lot of controversy, or not controversy, but um, speculation that this stuff was all in the lab, um, that it was all kind of just. Um, PR and, and kind of innovation theater, I, I've, I've been suggesting for some time that this might start to look more and more like mandatory upgrade of, of existing systems for for banks and, and get onto a mandatory regulatory um, list somewhere. A good somewhere. excuse to
2: get a budget. Yeah. I think that's what it was for a long time. Um, I think there are like really, really boring, not sexy problems that have to do with DLT that even if we kind of put our trust in the consensus wars of the platforms, um, that we haven't really addressed as an industry because a lot of the scopes of the POCs that you see um, that are being um, developed are very, very narrow so that you can assure that the the project will be a success on one hand. But um, how that integrates, how you deploy, how you do the onboarding, how do you write the information from the blockchain back into your legacy systems and incorporate that into other applications within uh, the bank?
1: That's huge.
2: We haven't even started talking about those things. And uh, I think it's a it's a really big concern. I mean, just for example, this is one of these things that I've been really, really um, looking into, and I, I haven't started to wrap my head around it. How do you spool all the data that you want to unboard from one bank onto the blockchain if you don't even have it in one place within the bank.
1: Mm-hmm. And, right? and how do you start reconciling data sets through consensus if the the state of that underlying data at the moment is a complete mess um, and doesn't match in any way, shape or form? Because there are actually, there's not one canary wharf, there's two of them. And we're all looking for different parking spaces in parallel universes. It's the kind of that challenge of the first step is, is I think, a, a huge one and, and a really... Significant one.
2: There was this one bank um, I spoke to, which was really amazing. One bank keeps, for example, an Excel sheet that they re- that they do for reporting of this one asset class, and the other one has this API that like a customized built in for their own uh, country. And you're thinking, how do we make sure this data goes into the same system, and how do we automate it? And we haven't even started to address that because we were busy talking about consensuses and hyperledgers and consortias and, and, and so forth. Um, and I think this is, maybe we're not as hyped as an industry right now, blockchain, but that means we're actually, we're working.
1: And we're starting we're, to do the really hard stuff. Yeah, we're I not
2: think, only on Twitter.
0: I think that's that's a, a reasonable way of articulating it. it, it you've now seen uh, the R3 consortium open source its quarter code base. And to my mind, that that should quietly go into the Hyperledger project and we should recognize that we're trying to lift away from this technology fest or tech fest uh, and actually move into some of the business problems where actually the way we solve these problems is get out there and do it. And the reason that you're not hearing the hype that David spoke of um, is, is because people are heads down working on things. Uh, we broke cover uh, late last year, with with Emerald, uh, the clearing and settlement mechanism uh, built to meet the SEPA ICT requirements, and gave you the test results from that, purely so that other uh, of my peers wouldn't do the same thing, mm. because it's actually here's a set of real requirements, here are a set of non-functional requirements that we must meet, that shows you the technology must meet it. We don't now need to prove that once again, and that then allows us to move the conversation on into let's talk about harder things, which is how are we actually going to operate these platforms and these blockchains if they're in a distributed mode? If they're a distributed platform, you're not going to then put them inside a single legal entity. Otherwise, you might as well be back to a database with an API.
1: It's it's really interesting that that debate then breaks the question. I know um, a good good friend and colleague Lee brain often talks about then what does the regulated status of each entity in that distributed ledger need to look like because um, if we're effectively operating a service that would have previously been offered operated by a centralized entity in other words a financial markets institution an FMI does that not mean that every node in that network every bank is now subject to FMI requirements and there are no I don't I don't know that that question has been answered yet perhaps it hasn't in some quarters but I think there are tricky questions like that um, that need to be tested that trialed through trial and error um, and worked with, you know, the the hard yards need to be done with the legal experts and the compliance experts to figure out by asset class, by product, can I achieve this? Because the answer to that question is different for every market, for every product. Um, And it's just annoying how irritatingly complex financial services can be.
2: But even then, you know, let me challenge you on that. Um, I think we're still looking at only singular kinds of assets on the blockchains because we're like Richard said, we're testing every single thing. Like, you know, we're kind of, throwing stuff on, on on spaghetti on a wall and seeing what sticks and what we can work with and go on to the next step. But we're not looking at the entire market in itself and kind of trying to assess it, right? So if you're looking at asset classes, I mean, I think it's not a secret that um, the industry started, the first asset we were all looking at were second derivative products or syndicated um, loans and such. And the thought that you might have an entire workflow from um, commodities into... Equities and, uh, and debt and securities, and then kind of move on with the asset classes as they are dependent on the underlying uh, uh, financial instruments, is something that we even haven't started to model. Um, and, and that's not to talk about the workflows.
1: Uh, And that's a key point, isn't it? So everybody's still, I think, coming at this from from slightly different angles, although it does seem to have converged a little bit about the workflow side, um, about having a straight through process and an end to end workflow. Um, I often tell the story of like if if you're uh, a trader sitting in a bank and you're trying to uh, sell a product to the market and you've got a buyer out there then what you'll do is you'll go to your uh, compliance team and you'll say is this okay is this all all above board can i work with these people you'll go to your uh, credit team and say can can i afford this transaction you know do we have the space on the balance sheet you know is this something we can sell should we sell it do i have the approval you'll go to through tiers of management um, and you'll go through all of that internal process and in some organizations that might even be quite automated and it might even be this really nice straight through process and many it might not be but when you get to the end of that process what do you do you create a pdf and you email that PDF to the client. And then the client emails you back a PDF and maybe it's not the full contract, it's just the last page with a signature on it. So they then can argue about, well, what version of the contract did they sign? Um, And so these sorts of problems come up consistently where you find that data just doesn't match in the simplest ways. So to have a straight through process between organizations that are either uh, competitors and or are just buying and selling, so therefore have some market distance between why they can't have the same administrator over their database becomes really compelling for why you need that straight through process and why you need standardization. And distributed ledger does appear to be moving in that direction. But to to the point about it being hard yards and being slow at the moment, one of the questions I've been toying with is as you look at all of that market structure, as you look at the scale of the problem, it appears like you have two choices. And certainly in established markets, established products, which is you either tackle a problem small enough that you can beat it, or you try and tackle the whole thing and, and you never beat it, but you try and keep an eye on the big picture all the time. Does that not mean then that brownfield stuff is really, really hard and that when we're looking at this, we should imagine new products and new services?
2: I'm all for that. But then again, I I do kind of tend to look at the abstraction of blockchain. So um, if you're talking about workflows, one of the things that I find really compelling is the concept that if you have a workflow on a blockchain between different entities, now you could actually create a capital market on business transactions and entire workflows right Because you have uh, you're able to follow it if you're able to assure that the, the privacy right and you have some sort of consensus on the content of that workflow if you're looking at procurement, on maintenance, um, you can have the financing of that be a financial in- instrument in itself.
1: Mm-hmm. Right? I think it gets quite meta, but you, you're basically saying your everyday business processes could be a financing instrument for some of your day-to-day business. It, it's kind of creating new asset classes is something I find tremendously compelling and, and something that um, a few people have now started to see, but I'm still not seeing a lot of. I saw PwC did a proof of concept around micro-bonds, I think uh, BNP Paribas he, he it, did, yeah, did, did the same thing. Um, I've seen a little bit of people trying to securitize trade finance, a little people trying to securitize diamonds and, and so on but the really compelling stuff comes into yeah when you're looking at what are what are the data points that i could see what are the data points i could have certainty over in a way that i couldn't have certainty over them before because there were too many sources too many people that had copies of that data so i didn't have certainty now i do have certainty over that data but
2: it's not only about certainty right it's also about computation and ability to have all that data i mean don't let's look at the other side of the spectrum even if it was uh feasible Maybe you would be just over swamped with all this influx of data. And now because of blockchain technology, you can just have uh, the valuation or a so, stage so of a business process is- kind of looking into that and le- and tell you, hey, this is a workflow with six steps. We're at uh, the third step and we're ahead of schedule by X couple of days and price that in financial instrument accordingly.
1: So it's, it's, it's less like... Um- kind of getting all the data and looking at it yourself. It's more like seeing the market and being able to price what's happening in the market, but with like a a little set of binoculars for for like this new thing. Some some really compelling ideas. Richard?
0: If you look at it um, from a a very simple perspective, the majority of the banks have spent a great deal of the last two decades trying to get to single sources of truth, intra-bank, and now they've realised that, actually, having done that, and the majority have got to straight through processing and single source of truth, in the, in many cases, single source of calculation, which is quite an achievement. Having got that far in the journey, the diminishing returns in terms of cost savings still got a huge cost base. well how do we how do we make the next decade of cost saving actually, we have to ring up our competitors and our peers um and say, actually, we need to, Uh, create a single source of truth single source of calculation and a single uh, repository of of much of the data where actually it's in our interest to come to that consensus and that is where that blockchain technology pushes uh, into that space
1: so that's absolutely precise and and a fantastic articulation Richard. but my, my point was simply isn't that easier to do in a greenfield environment than a brownfield one
0: It is obviously easier to do in a greenfield space, but actually how many greenfields do you find in finance? You can see people rebadging and renaming. ICOs are a really good example. the primary issuance of debt or equity is still the primary issuance of equity or debt. You can call it ICO, you can call it crowdfunding. We used to call it syndicated lending if it was debt. I, I don't mind what you call it. We've probably done it before. We very rarely come up with new instruments we may package uh, and create derivatives on top of instruments, but actually, if we wind the clock—if we wind the clock back, when we started the blockchain journey, the first thing we were all talking about was a digital currency, store of value, transfer of value. The next thing after that is a bill of laden, which allows me to put shi- uh, goods on the ship. It's one of the ancient and certainly one of the oldest uh, financial instruments. We're trying to kind of run before we walk if we start to try and do high order, complex uh, financial instruments when we actually haven't tracked through financial history and got ourselves into a situation where we're building on top of everything else, which is where we've got to right now. We sit in Canary Wharf at the heart of uh, the fintech capital. For now. For now. Mm-hmm. And actually that location has built itself over time. There's a reason there's a wind vane on top of the Bank of England.
1: No, it makes sense that um, your volume and your scale is in the existing financial products, but I think also all of your difficulty and all of your 10-year programs are in, in, in the existing financial products. You can prove something quite easily in something that's smaller, more nascent, and you can then take that and, and implement it elsewhere or migrate old things to that. It, it's simply a, um, what uh, Elon Musk calls the get-off-the-planet strategy. You send out a small team, small research area, and you, you do it with something small, and then you prove that it works with something that wasn't as key and core. um it's and then more in the you realize you
2: can procreate on mars
1: well but maybe that happens you you mentioned the term ico um i want to de- uh, just turn that from three letters into the the term is initial coin offering maya do you want to give us a view as to you know what is what is an ico
2: an ICO is uh, just like Richard said it. It's basically an IPO with a coin. Glad you finished that that sentence. <laughs> I had to. I'm, I'm
0: not being described as an ICO yet, but that's an interesting one.
1: <laughs> and it's just like Richard. He's an IPO. I week. cut you
0: off. Carry on. <laughs>
2: so um, it, it was. It started off from the Bitcoin space as a way of having uh, new meta coins for people to fundraise or or crowdfund uh, a lot of money or Bitcoins or Ethereums for different uh, crypto projects. And it kind of took off from there in terms of a market in itself because every little project had their own coin and then it became something very speculative and a pump and dump on one hand, on the other hand, you can also make the case that Ethereum started out as an ICO.
1: Yeah, so th- this is somebody selling um, these these tokens, and these could be like coupons, but they're digital coupons. And I buy these these digital coupons and they represent potential future value in a project if that project does well. And those coupons may increase in value if more people buy those coupons over time.
2: Yeah, but in the beginning, it was supposed to be something that was inherent to that project. Like, you would need this token in order mm. to for storage um, to in, in order to buy storage on a distributed storage platform, something like that. And I think it kind of um, went from there to just being a coin that will
0: grow in value mm-hmm. or not.
1: Yeah, it became purely speculative. And, and I think to to Richard's point, That's, we've seen this takes model.
0: That takes you back, Simon, to your point about, you know, what are we doing with the uh, distributed ledgers? And you asked, you know, how are we solving KYC? Actually, initial coin offering is a really good example of where we're from day one issuing a digital asset that represents a, uh, a, a something, in this case equity or debt. And the problem you're trying to solve when you issue shares, private shares, is that's a private share, it has no public exchange. Uh, until you go to initial public offering, how do I exchange it, where's the secondary market? And The fact is is that an ICO in a distributed platform provides that secondary market which then gives you liquidity and thus a price of that. And now you can value the ICO. So from a company's perspective, actually, what am I worth? What they're getting out of an ICO is a real-time valuation of their company's worth.
1: Well, what's interesting about that is that they're doing it before they've done anything. So this is before the project started. It's, it's like almost the first route of funding, whereas an IPO, an initial public offering, when I sell shares to the market, I've done something, I've been in operation for 5, 10 years, and the market can see those figures and facts and make decide for themselves if, I'm, if there's a fair value for, for my number of shares and, and the share price I'm paying. With an ICO, it's before I even start writing any code, this is going to be the way I fund it. And because I'm getting a token that has to be used inside this technology, in theory, my investment's going to pay off if this project does well.
2: Yeah. Well, then you're making a, an investment decision based on marketing hype and the peop- and the reputation of the people involved in this project, right? And uh, let's face it, a lot of these ICOs have been able to raise money, a lot of money, very fast, more than VC money or regular crowdfunding. I mean, just today, I don't remember what project it was. They got $17 million yeah. within about 30 minutes. Um
1: What I I saw was interesting is I'm not familiar with that particular project, but there was obviously the DAO, which was very famous. There's um, Blockchain Capital, which is Brock Pierce's um, fund, um, that's been actually regulated in Singapore, which is quite interesting. They're trying to follow regulation as much as they can, and they're trying to fit it. And uh, When when I've talked uh, privately with a number of global regulators, they are very curious about sandboxing this stuff because they see it as an alternative route to funding um, from a startup perspective, but they're also very, very cautious about what it it could actually mean. Um, And there's also uh, Andreessen Horowitz have done a spin-off mini ICO fund themselves. So it's interesting that um, this is an area that the institutional investors are starting to pay attention to.
2: But here's a question. Are they looking at it as like an opportunity for a really, really good return in terms of hedge funding through ICOs or are they looking at this as a platform for a company um, to grow, right? Because uh, there is a lot to be said in terms of, of how fast some of these coins just grow in value, and then, you know, it's a pump and dump some, in some cases.
0: Well,
1: yeah. Um, in, in this crypto asset space, you see that quite often.
2: Right. And, and, and because the volume isn't that high and the, the investors are not that sophisticated, there's a lot of algo trade opportunities just for that little space. And uh, the liquidity is not always guaranteed as well. So if you hedge it very smartly between different exchanges, there there is an opportunity for very quick returns just as an investor, not necessarily for someone who participated in the ICO. I think that might be a play just as much as as – looking at ICOs as a fundraising platform.
1: Yeah, it, it's, it's about an alignment of incentive and, and kind of what are the incentives there. All right, so last question for you guys. Um, we're going to ride off into the sunset. I think this has been a properly good blockchain geek fest so far. Um, Richard, what's exciting you at the moment? What are you what are you getting excited about?
0: So other than blockchain, uh, which is obviously keeping us uh, very busy, uh, over in World Bank Scotland, we've got um, AI, uh, and that breaks into machine learning and, and bots. Uh, you've seen us break cover with the rbs uh, assist uh, bot uh, on our website you can go over to rbs.co.uk and the little help uh, assist tab that's on the right hand side pops out uh, and and there's uh, one of the one of the first bots uh, which is backed into ibm's watson uh, and answering uh, live answering questions from our customers today Uh, that's keeping us uh, busy and then of course uh, open banking is coming um, and We call that, uh, I could certainly call that our open reach moment for UK banks. And the bankofapis.com hackathon series uh, that we're running. We're now nine hackathons in. Uh, We've had 700 delegates. We've done um, seven locations now, including Tel Aviv and and India. Um, You uh, are welcome to to sign up to any of those. Uh, We'd love to see an 11FS team join us uh, on the bankofapis.com hackathon. Uh, Next one's soon. Sounds
1: good, Richard. And uh, what's exciting you at the moment, Mayor? and where can people find out more?
2: Okay, so first of all, um, Kedit.com. That's qedi it.com. We're really excited about getting the first Kedit uh, product out there and going into production. We think that uh, Zero Knowledge Proofs as a platform and as a tooling mechanism is something that's going to help a lot of the blockchain projects that went and died in the in the labs go into the world and get integrated into legacy system, and have regulatory approval. Uh, And we're really looking a lot into um, projects that have already been thought of, the granular, more singular transactional kind, but also identity, where identity gets transacts into the world and becomes a means into a financial process. That's one of them. And the other is, see how the regulators are willing to participate in real-time compliance. Through zero knowledge proofs.
1: I love that. Real time compliance. Are the regulators ready for real time compliance? Let's let's find out and are they ready for it? through zero knowledge proofs. This is going to be an interesting one to watch and uh, certainly do look out for bankofapis.com and kedit.com. So thank you everyone for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast. Tell a friend to subscribe to our podcast. Make that your one mission for today. Leave us a review on iTunes. Of course, this helps people discover it. Check out 11fs.com. It's shiny and new. Uh, There's a new version of it for you. If you want to know more about the team who bring you the FinTech Insider every week. Until next week. Thank you. I'm gonna be a good person.